As we look at Philippians chapter 2, I want to ask you the question this morning, what gives you joy? And judging by the social media, what gives joy even to Christians is food, entertainment, sport, going to new places, but rarely it appears as spiritual things. I want to say to you, that's dangerous. Because as a Christian, you're to be filled with joy, even if what's before you is only dry bread and water. Because we remember that a lot of the world goes to bed hungry every night. And we're to have joy even if there's no money for entertainment. And we have shut-ins, don't we, who can't go to new places. They're in their place day after day, year after year. And they're to have joy, aren't they? As we all are. As opposed to the grumbling we looked at last week in chapter 2, verse 14 of Philippians, Joy is to mark the Christian. A joy that's not dependent on outward circumstances. Because later Paul is going to say in this very letter, chapter 4 and verse 11, that I'm content in whatsoever situation I'm in. Whether I'm low or abounding, whether I'm facing uh, uh, plenty and hunger, abundance and need, it doesn't make any difference. I'm content and therefore joyful. I want you to remember, brethren, that Paul is writing this letter not from a cosy, warm, plush office, but from prison. And why is he in prison? Has he done wrong? He's been falsely accused and he's had to travel all the way to Rome via a shipwreck. And there he's writing about joy from prison. <laughs> I want to remind you that the Philippians are not having a great time of uh, church growth and Everybody in the town of Philippi is thinking what a wonderful church this is. In chapter 1 here of Philippians, Paul says, you've got to strive for the faith. And don't be frightened by your opponents. They were knowing opposition, but they were to have joy, even in the midst of that. In one very real way, the theme of Philippians is joy. And we will have more sermons on joy from Philippians. Just read chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, uh, verse 4 in particular. So I'm focusing for you on joy, especially looking at verses 17, the end. And verse 18, as that which will bring us into this passage. We're going to ask, 
Why does Paul write at the end of verse 17? Have you got it there? At the end of verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Actually, it's the same word, glad and rejoice. It's the same word as Paul wrote it. I re I'm rejoicing and I'm rejoicing with you. Why does he write in verse 18? You also should be glad. Same word, rejoice. And rejoice with me. It just doesn't sound very good in English, does it, when you repeat the word rejoice. So it's just for a, a variety. And the short answer to those questions is rejoice because Paul's ministry results in a genuine Christian life in the Philippines. It's not what you expected, I suppose. We try to unpack it. In fact, we shall work somewhat backwards through the text, beginning with verses 17, 18, and going backwards to where we were last week in verse 14. Two questions as we seek to understand and apply what this says to us. First of all, what gave Paul joy? He said, end of verse 17, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. As Paul thought about this church in Philippi to whom he was writing, and he looked to the future, he didn't want to find that his ministry among them was in vain. You look at verse 16. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. These words are strong words. Running. It's not an easy word, at least for most of us, but it's a word Paul loves to use of his uh, Christian life. He uses the same phrase of the Galatians that uh, I don't want you to have run in vain. You started the Christian life. It's a, it's a race. And he uses the language of labor, not run in vain or labor in vain. It sort of explains what the running is. The word labor is hard work, toilsome work. And as people live the Christian life, as Paul ministers, that's the character of that life. Maybe not very pleasant as you think about it. Listen to him in Colossians chapter 1 as he says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. He says, Colossians 1.29, for this I toil. Got the idea of back-breaking work? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you watched anything of the uh, recent athletics in London, you can appreciate why I'm, I like it, can't you? Because you know who does, tends to do well in, in athletics. But they run, 
they run, they give it everything, and when they cross the line, boom, they're finished, many of them. That's what he's talking about. Not an easy jaunt, not an amble, but giving it absolutely everything that you have to the point of exhaustion. And Paul said, I want to be proud of you, Philippians. In that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he calls it, verse 16, the day of Christ. I want to be proud of you, that uh, you have shown yourself to be genuine Christians. More about that in a minute. To accomplish that purpose, Paul says, I am willing and I have been giving everything in me. I have not spared myself at all. I want you to look at the language he uses in verse 17. Even if, in other words, in order to be proud of you on that day, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, it's okay. The idea of drink offering, perhaps not very common, uh, I'm not going to go into it, but there were drink offerings offered with uh, sacrifices like burnt offerings in the Old Testament. I will give you just one in, Jude, um, in Numbers chapter 28, talking of the burnt offerings. It says, their drink offerings, verse 14, shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, a quarter of a hen for a lamb. And so along with the burnt offering, uh, wine as a drink offering was poured out to sort of complete the sacrifice. It wasn't the sacrifice itself. Here, Paul's drink offering completes or complements their offering. He talks about upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Isn't that an interesting way of describing the Christian life? It's a life, of course, of faith. Faith in what God has revealed, faith in in God as we walk according to his will and his promises in our daily lives. But it's a life viewed as a sacrifice. This is the whole terminology that Paul is, is using here. A sacrifice is something dedicated wholly to God. You know that verse where Paul says, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, give every part of your life to God for his use and for his glory. So Paul's saying, even if I've got to be this drink offering, that is, even if I've got to offer myself as a sacrifice, and he's pretty clearly referring to the possibility of dying, as a martyr. Can I ask you, why was Paul in prison? 
Well, he'll tell you. I'm in prison for the gospel. It's because I have stood up for the gospel, which is equally applicable to Jew as well as Gentile. Both are united through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul lived and died for as you read his letters. And he says, even if standing for the gospel, I actually die for that. It's okay. I'm willing for that. If only it benefits you. If only you prove to be genuine Christians at the end. Isn't he just like his master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that exactly what Paul has said that Jesus did? He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself of no reputation or emptied himself. Jesus humbled himself even to death, the death of the cross. Why did he do it? In order that we might be saved, we might be genuine Christians. And at last, his pure bride on the day when he returns. So whether it's the Lord and here, whether it's Paul, what it cost Paul to be sure that the Philippians would be genuine Christians on the day of Christ, what it cost him was irrelevant. All that mattered was the Philippians were genuine, were true Christians, showed themselves to be so on the last day. This is echoed in the language of uh, Acts chapter 20, where Paul says to uh, other church leaders, I don't count my life of any value to myself or as precious, if only I may finish the race. I may complete my run. That's Acts 20 and verse 24. This was then his one concern, that he would be of benefit to these Philippians spiritually, and that would be seen on the last day. Again, to the Thessalonians, listen to what he writes about them in chapter 2 of First Thessalonians. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul wasn't prepared to have a ministry that was fruitless. The joy he would have when Christ returned would be seeing the Philippians there and the Thessalonians there. And let's apply this then. First of all, it's got an application to all of us who lead. That we're to give ourselves fully for the ultimate spiritual benefit of those to whom we minister. Brothers, we must have the final day in view. What's our aim in leadership in the church, 
in ministry in the church. I don't mean just the elders. There are all sorts of, of leaders in, in the church with responsibilities. We must have the final day in view. What do we want on that day? Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, I'm like a woman in travail. You can see the strong language he uses. If only that Christ be formed in you. That's our great desire. And then it has application to all of us in our responsibilities here in the church and even wider as Christians. As we interact and do things together, brethren, what is our aim? Is it just good things, nice things? May I call it worldly joy? They're okay up to a point. We are to enjoy uh, this wonderful world that God has created. But surely we must have a deeper motive. For example, when we talk, we're not just having a good time and making each other happy. The Bible tells us we are to edify one another. Only speak that which is good for edification because we want people to be genuine Christians, strong Christians for that day which is coming. We must consider how we can spiritually profit one another. That has such wide applications, doesn't it, in all our uh, interactions with one another. And it's in the light of that day, I remind you of then Philippians 2.16, so that in the day of Christ, Paul lived his life in view of that day. Is it possible someone saying, but preacher, you're getting too serious. That's too much. That everything I do, I've got to live in that light. And my reply is, it's not too serious at all. We are in a war, aren't we? We're in a spiritual battle. The stakes are too high. What are the stakes? The danger that your heart and the heart of your brother and sister be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You've seen it, haven't you, in others? You've possibly experienced it yourself. And the, the biblical antidote to that is exhort one another every day while it's called today. It is serious business. But when we see genuine spiritual life, when we see sacrificial living, when we hear a report of people converted in the midst of persecution, when we hear of someone who's laid down his or her life in faithfulness to Christ, it should give us great joy. That is what we're living for. So that's the first question that's prompted by the end of verse 17. And then verse 18 of Philippians 2 prompts another question. What should give the Philippians joy? Because he writes, 
Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And in the context, I believe what Paul is saying specifically is you rejoice that you have a minister, me, Paul, who's willing to give himself even to death for your spiritual good. Because that's what he's emphasised, verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, you rejoice that God has given you such a one because what they need and what we need above everything else. Our leaders, our brethren, to help us in view of that approaching day. For example, when you have a medical need, you've been through an operation, whatever it may be, then you come back with a report, don't you, about the medical treatment you've gotten and the consultant who you've seen or the surgeon who's operated on you. It may be good or bad, but you like to come back and say, oh, I was treated so well. Oh, that uh, medical person was so kind to me. And if we extol good medical people who simply look after our bodies and we are so thankful for them, why shouldn't we uh, rejoice and extol those who benefit us spiritually? It's a far greater privilege. Where would you be if you were all alone? No church. If there was a famine of the word of God, no preaching. Where would you be? What blessings we have, don't we? Paul is already convinced, actually, that because he believes this particular trial will not lead to his execution, but he'll be released. He already believes that the Philippines are going to rejoice in that. Chapter 1, verse 25. Convinced of this, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So this idea of rejoicing in uh, those who help us to be spiritually mature and we show ourselves to be true Christians is quite a biblical idea. Therefore, again, brothers and sisters, if you have someone who loves you enough to deal with you according to your spiritual need, if you have someone who loves you enough to feed you with the word of God in due season, if you have someone who loves you enough who is not afraid to rebuke you when you go astray, if you have someone who loves you so much that they live, they sacrifice themselves in order that Christ may be formed in you, Rejoice, rejoice greatly because that's a great spiritual blessing. They're caring for your soul. Now, what form does that take? That's the general. 
How is that worked out? Well, we're going to work backwards rather unusually through the passage, although you appreciate that as, uh, as we talk, as we, we write, we, we build going forward. So it's quite proper to go backwards and unpack the argument, as it were. But there are three things in verses 14 <coughs> to 16. The first one is this. Rejoice when you are challenged to hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16. Paul assumes that the Philippians will do this. They are doing it as children of God. <clears throat> so this is a challenge to our self-examination. Am I holding fast to the word of life? Verse 16. Now, there are questions about the precise translation of holding fast. Have it in your New King James Bibles, church Bibles. And in this one, I have the ESV. But if you look on the front of your church bulletin, where this phrase appears. You, did you know that? This is a church that's holding forth the uh, word of life. It's a, a different uh, a translation. It comes from the, the old King James Version. And then if you had the NIV, at least a, a rather old edition of it, it goes for holding out, rather like holding forth, and at the bottom, it has holding onto, which is rather like holding fast. So they make a decision, but tell you it can be translated uh, either way. This is the difference. I can hold something like that tightly to keep it to myself, to make sure it's not lost. Or I can hold it out for you to take. That's the difference between the two. And really the one is dependent on the other. Unless I've got something secure in my hand, I can't hold it out to you. But I think the emphasis here is on uh, holding fast, at least as a foundation. In other words, to hold fast to the word of life basically means holding tightly to the gospel, the word of life, not letting go of the gospel, being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's already said this. These things come over again and again. In verse 27 of chapter 1, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, be of the same mind. In other words, have the same faith. Hold the same gospel. How vital this is. Notice that the gospel is called the word of of life. There's no other message in the world that proclaims 
life, true spiritual life from the dead than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it not only proclaims spiritual life, it actually imparts spiritual life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I've come to give life, and that abundantly. You know, the gospel, its characteristic is this, it's the word of life. It comes to us as dead sinners who have no relationship with God, whom the clouds of sin have hidden from us. So the, the sun of God's blessing doesn't shine upon us. And it comes to us like that. And this word of life speaks about Christ, who alone can give life. I say there's nobody else. There's no other message that can, uh, uh, can give that because it deals with our basic needs. I'm saying to you, uh, brothers and sisters, rejoice this morning that that gospel is preached by your leaders in this church. Don't take it for granted. It is rare and increasingly rare how many sincere people are being led astray by false gospels. They're being deceived. They're being led astray because they're counterfeit. And you know, the whole point of a counterfeit thing is, unless you look closely, it looks genuine. It doesn't proclaim itself to be false. It says it's the true one. You thank God that Sunday by Sunday, and at other times, there is faithfulness to the word of life. Here we tell you, week after week, there's only one source of spiritual life before God. It's Jesus Christ, and it's him only. And that gospel is the foundation for everything. It's not just the way of salvation. Building on that gospel, you have genuine Christian life. Do you know the gospel? If you were invited to come, even though you're not a very good speaker, if you had a bit of preparation, so you had some notes, could you give two minutes and say, this is what the gospel is? You know, you can't hold on to something that you don't know or that you don't have, can you? So how vital it is that you struggle, prayerfully struggle and seriously study the word that you are absolutely sure of the gospel, which is the word of life. Then the second thing that you should rejoice in is found in verse 15, that when you are told that you shine as lights in the world, rejoice that you are told that. Again, this is a fact of a true Christian. 
It's not that Christians should hold fast to the word of life. They do. It's not that Christians should shine as lights in the world. They do. Yes, with various degrees of intensity, but they do. And we need to be constantly challenged. Is that true of me? This is probably an allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Can you put that there, please? Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Many allusions you found here in uh, Philippians to the Old Testament. And those who are wise, Daniel says, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And it's to be understood in the sense of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That includes words, but it's much broader than our speech. It's not specifically what we call evangelism, which is speaking. Includes our whole lifestyle. We shine as lights in the world. Now, as Christians, we're not of the world. We don't belong to the world, but we are in the world. And this is a call for engagement, isn't it? How can you shine as a light in the world if you're not there to shine? So what Jesus says, you, uh, you don't light a lamp and hide it under a, a, a lampshade, a, a lampstand, uh, under a basket. You, you light the lamp to give light. And as Christians, then it's assumed that we're going to be totally different from the world as we live in the world. The world is crooked and twisted. Of course, the world is dark, therefore. And there's different darknesses from light, so Christians are, by definition, as different from the world. Christians are straight in the sense we're not crooked. We stand upright, unashamed of doing the will of God as opposed to twisted. So when you are told, shine, don't be ashamed of being Christian in your place of work, in your school, in your family. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be like the world in what you live for. You can't serve two masters, God and mammon, riches, this world. Rejoice when you're told that. Yes, it can come very heavily, can't it? It can arouse a guilty conscience in you, but that's what we need as Christians to be challenged to shine as lights in the world. And I say to you again this morning, thank God, in other words, rejoice, that you have a church 
And I think I can say this better than church leaders because uh, I'm a visiting preacher, although I attend here. Thank God that you have a church that is not seeking to get as near to the world as possible in order to attract people. Thank God for that. It's costly, isn't it? A few changes, you know, in the church and you could get this, this place filled next week. Wouldn't be difficult. But we recognise that we are lights shining in the world. We've got to go into the world, not the world get into us. Thank God, specifically, that this church is not jumping on the bandwagon of prosperity. Oh, we're here to fulfil all the needs that you think you have. No, you're being told what your needs are. They are spiritual in view of the day of Christ. Thank God when you hear that message time and time again. And then the third thing brings us back to where we were last week. Thank God when you're warned against grumbling or questioning. I hope you didn't find that so heavy last week. It was heavy, it was. It can come uh, and really challenge us. But thank God for it. Thank God when your leaders get specific with you. Don't, don't just tell you, don't be worldly. Be Christ-like. But they get down to details and tell you of specific conduct which will show whether you are a child of God without blemish and whether you really are shining as light in the world. If Paul had known that the Philippian church continued to be a church of grumblers, you know what his response would be? I've run in vain. My ministry has accomplished nothing. Not because uh, they didn't profess to have faith in Christ. They did profess that. But because they weren't showing a fundamental mark of a Christian. They were grumblers. Not contented people, as he goes on to show in chapter 4. Not those submissive to God's inscrutable providences. So may I say to you again, because we come back to verse 14. If put negatively, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But here is a peculiar Christian conduct. Of course, there's the positive the joyful submission to God, the contentment, the rejoicing in God's providences. But it's peculiarly Christian because we know we have a heavenly father who's in control of everything. If you want to be assured of that again, go and read the story, the book of Esther, and see all the amazing things that God was in control of, who entered the palace at right the moment 
Uh, what book was opened when a king couldn't sleep? And what page was it open to? And so on and so on. Uh, be assured that God is in control. And so when you are warned not to express the opposite, that is grumbling and questioning, thank God that you are being dealt with faithfully. So in Belvedere Road Church, we're not looking for a, a public relations man to make the church popular, are we? We're not looking for a business executive who ensures that the church grows numerically and financially because you've got a five-year plan. And you're not certainly looking for an entertainer who can make people feel comfortable. My brethren, this is what we pray our leaders will be and that we'll be one to another. As, Paul, as Peter writes to the Christians, he says you've got to practice certain qualities, uh, especially love and, and so on. And he says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a kingdom waiting to be entered. In a sense, we're in the kingdom now, but in its fullness, when the kingdom comes fully with the return of Christ, then we shall enter it. And he says, there will be richly provided. We're not going to enter it with shame, but richly, joyfully, confidently, thankfully. And those who minister to us and we in our relationships with one another, we must have that goal as we deal with one another. Oh, that you, and you say this to me, oh, that you may have a rich entrance into the kingdom when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. In other words, we've got to be people, leaders and others, who give ourselves even to death for that. What should give you joy? Maybe it wasn't what you were expecting, was it? But it's right there, I think. In the passage, that you have ministered to others faithfully so that they live a life of sacrifice of faith like the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we rejoice when others do that to us and we find ourselves growing spiritually and we find there the evidence that I am truly a child of God. May that be our joy. We're going to pray. Father, please change us according to your word. Help our 
perspectives and our priorities, that which we live for, that which gives us joy, be the eternal spiritual things of genuine conversion and Christ-likeness. Oh, Lord, help us together as a church, leaders and members and others. Help us to so be a blessing to one another that on that day when Christ comes, we shall not be ashamed, but shall be able to look upon him with joy as our Lord and Saviour. Please bless your word, we pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.